0: Our scripture lesson this morning is drawn from First Peter chapter two, verses eleven through twenty-five. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, honorable among the Gentiles speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your works, terror, glorify God in the area. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of the for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are them for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if, because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. to God. Servants, be submissive to your masters. In Bible study this morning, uh, we were talking about the term servant here, or bond servant, which is in verse 16, just two verses back. Uh, That's not the best translation. It simply isn't. The term is doulos, and the term doulos means slave. Now, every slave is a servant, but not every servant is a slave. The butler, the maid, the au pair, they are all servants, but they would take it most unkindly if you said they were your slaves. The word is slave, but in many modern English translations, That won't be how it's translated. It'll be bondservant or servant or something to that effect. I wonder why that is. I will take what is taboo for 100, Alex? Slavery is a taboo subject. Does anybody know what a taboo is? Could you uh, give a definition of it? If Becca was here, I would tell her that no, this is not hypothetical, you can actually answer What is What is taboo? Socially forbidden? What now? Socially forbidden. Socially forbidden, that is how we use the term. Uh, Is that all of it or what what is taboo? That is how it's used. What now? It's kind of like the third rail on the, the train track. You don't touch it ever. You don't talk about it. it. It's just kept at bay. The term taboo actually is a religious term. It comes out of those religions that are called animistic. Uh, they are religions that believe that their spirits and everything And part of those religions have irrational beliefs and practices that are simply assumed, and you cannot break them. You cannot even talk about them. They are something just to be feared and to be kept at bay. Uh, If you have ever watched little kids walking on the sidewalk and one of them says, step on a crack, break your mother's back, technically they're engaging in taboo. Uh, You won't break your mother's back if you step on a crack. It turns out that's not true. I've done it many times. Mom's back is fine. But kids will tell each other that and, and they're effectively engaging in the spirit of taboo. Taboo is something that is irrational. You can't actually logically defend it, but it's very, very important. And if you break a taboo in one of these animistic societies, you'll be shunned. You, you are the bad guy. Nobody breaks a taboo. You don't even talk about it. Well, Western society... American society has a few animistic taboos. And one of them is the issue of slavery. You were raised as a child, taught that human slavery is the worst of all evils. No one but a true monster would ever engage in slavery Any man who ever engaged in slavery is in fact not to be considered worthy of listening to on any point. Slavery is the greatest sin. And we all agree to this. Society absolutely demands it. It is not to be questioned. It is a given truth. And if anyone were to question that, They would be outside of the culture. They would be considered to have broken the worst stricture of Western society. You don't talk about slavery ever. We assume this is the worst sin that can possibly be done. and We're not going to talk about it. It's not up for debate. The church herself... Buys into this taboo, whether it is the mainline liberal church or whether it is the evangelical church. And the evangelical church, as opposed to the mainline church, believes in what's called the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. The Bible is the Word of God, and because it is God's Word, it partakes of His nature. That means that it is inerrant, it doesn't have any errors in it, and it is timeless and true so that it doesn't get old. The Bible doesn't become old-fashioned and go out of date. But then the evangelical minister gets to verse 18. What does he do with it? Slaves, to translate correctly, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, you're a, you're a typical evangelical minister. It comes up in the Bible. How do you handle that? Well, if you're not an exegetical preacher, if you don't go through books of the Bible, you've kind of got it made because you simply don't have to read those passages. It can be the word of God that nobody ever hears from the pulpit, and you don't know have to deal with it. If you are an exegetical preacher and you read and preach through books, then what is probably the socially wisest thing to do is to read the passage and then preach on other parts. Yes, I read it to my congregation. It was in First Peter. They heard it. uh, Let's move on. Or if that isn't satisfying to you because you know the Bible is inherent and all of it is the Word of God, and you feel you can't just let something go by, what tends to happen is what Kenneth Taylor did in his earliest drafts of the Living Bible, which he did publish when he was publishing it as sections of the Living Bible, but then changed it when he published the whole thing. He translated it early on as Workers obey your foreman. Now, some of you are workmen, and some of you are foremen. Are you slaves if you're a worker? Those of you who have workers, do you treat them as slaves? Do you see them as slaves? They might say you do, but is that the truth? You who are foremen, are you slave masters? Is, is this passage really talking about you? It is clear that it is not. But you got to say something. And so we talk about workmen. But that is not what Peter was, in fact, talking about. Peter doesn't seem to have the American taboo because he doesn't. Peter is writing from a biblical context, and in the Hebrew Bible, slavery is not a taboo topic. You will find references to slavery several places. We heard one, in fact, in Bible study this morning. Um, It comes up in the Hebrew Bible because slavery has been part of the human experience really since the beginning of civilization, and it continues with us. Did you know that today there are more people living in slavery, quite a bit more, than there were in 1860. The idea that slavery was ended by the American Civil War is just utter nonsense. Slavery continues to this day. And the Hebrew Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, deals with slavery and actually incorporates it into the Mosaic Law. These are also passages that, again, the average evangelical evangelical, doesn't really want to preach on, but luckily it's in those first five books of the Bible, so he did not really have to deal with those. But it's there. And if you study slavery holistically through Moses' law, you discover an interesting phenomenon. Those of you who know the first five books of the Bible, to a certain degree, um... or or really the whole testament, I'll I'll take it from anywhere, Um, throw out a few passages that talk about how the people of God are supposed to regulate a jail. Can Can you think of any? Moses' law is designed to be a national law. It is for living as a community. Where do you find any passage where you're told, okay, this is how a jailist operate, this is how you treat prisoners, you won't find it. The reason you won't find it is because in Moses' law, slavery is the penal system. Nobody goes to jail in the Hebrew Old Testament. If you're a prisoner, you're held very briefly— The purpose of holding you is so sentence will be passed upon you. This is momentary. At most, this is a day or two. And then the punishment is given to you. And oftentimes, the punishment is slavery. You will be put into slavery. Now, why are you put into slavery? Well, again, I'm putting a lot of passages together. I'm I'm painting with a broad brush. But... In Moses' law, there are three things that God is working with. He is working with the concept of punishment. You have done something wrong, so you deserve to be punished. That's part of justice. He is working with the concept of restitution. You have done something wrong, and you have harmed somebody at some level, and so you should, in fact, pay back what you've destroyed. And then there is the third idea of rehabilitation. You have broken God's law, and you have hurt men in the process. You are now out of step with society. And if you're not going to be put to death, and there's a lot of infractions, Moses of law, where you don't get put to death, you need to be reformed to the society. You need to be restored to it. Well, slavery did all of that. You were punished. Slavery was not necessarily pleasant. But you also restored what you broke. Oftentimes, you became a slave of the very people you had harmed. And in working out your slavery and paying back what you had taken, you were restored to society. So at the end of your slavery, which was not perpetual usually, uh, you could look people in the eye and say, "Yeah, sure, I did that, and I got the punishment, and I paid my dues. I've I've paid back, and I'm in good standing." That's how slavery works in the Old Testament. It was not usually it, 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 it was not usually a fellow co-religionist. There are a few cases where it is. But one thing it certainly was not in the Old Testament was race-based. However, very, very rarely was your fellow believer made a slave. Now, there were punishments for your fellow believer, but most of the time, now a time or two it is, but most of the time it is not your fellow believer that becomes a slave. But... Is somebody who's not your fellow believer, that's a possibility. That, by the way, uh, the, the New Testament brings that over. One of the things that the book of Philemon is about is the relationship of a slave master with a slave. And Paul appeals to the slave master. He has seen the slave come to faith. And the slave's name is Onesimus. The master's name is Philemon. And this is what Paul has to say, considering the two of them. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. His name means profit. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. So without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother." especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? The argument at the end is basically, if you had a biological brother, would you enslave him? The answer is no. In Jesus Christ, are you not brothers? You are. So why would Philemon keep Onesimus as a slave? You would not. But this is not a New New Testament idea. It comes out of the Hebrew Bible. It comes out of the use of slavery. Uh, Paul says, look, Onesimus is your brother, you wouldn't enslave him. During the Middle Ages, during the Crusader kingdoms, um, this was understood, and because of that, in the Crusader kingdoms in the Middle East, where they had slavery, slave owners went out of their way to keep their slaves away from Christian ministers, because they knew, the Bible said, if they converted, they would be set free. That was understood. And so they tried to keep them apart from Christian religion. But the principle was acknowledged. You know, you wouldn't enslave your brother. And in fact, the New Testament pulls forward uh, the whole mosaic ideal about what should happen to someone who has committed harm against the community. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, Paul says this about people who steal. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. When does a thief stop being a thief? Is it when he stops stealing? Is that when he stops being a thief? He's taken from others. He's given nothing back. Paul says to thieves, you really stop being a thief when you give back. You took, but now you give back. That's when you're no longer a thief. This is coming out of the biblical revelation concerning slavery. There is the need for restitution. Restitution is a biblical ideal. And Paul says, you know, you've been a thief. Stop it. Now give back to others that will restore you. I spent 10 years as a chaplain in prisons, and I have seen what our society puts forward instead of the evil of slavery, which is the worst sin, and we will never talk about it or imagine it. I have seen men and women locked in small rooms for a very long time, they are fed, they are even entertained, but they are locked in rooms and they are forbidden to do anything that has any purpose. You're going to serve 10 years, you're going to send 15 years. You're said to serve, but what are you serving? What are you restoring? You're restoring nothing and you're doing nothing, these years are specifically designed to be drained away and useless. And when you get out of jail, having lost those years of life, what have you restored? Can you look people in the eye and say, I I really restored something? The answer is no. It is a dehumanization, it is far, far worse than Moses' teaching on slavery. Peter wrote to the Greco-Roman world, if you remember at the beginning of the epistle, he says, I'm writing people in Bithynia and Cappadocia, it's all basically Turkey, The Romans didn't have this taboo idea either. The Roman slavery was not necessarily biblical slavery, but it also wasn't necessarily American slavery. We're not supposed to talk about slavery and look at any nuances, but the three are not the same. Uh, In Roman slavery, uh, it wasn't racial either but it wasn't always simply the penal system. Although for Romans, it often was the penal system. If you remember the book of Acts, you have the Philippian jailer. Greco-Roman society had jails, but they weren't used very much and there weren't that many of them. Roman society preferred either slavery or house imprisonment or banishment over long-time prison accommodations, and so there weren't as many jails, and often you were punished by being made a slave. Although in the Roman world, because free men might be left to starve to death and their up, there was quite a current of people who actually made themselves slaves on purpose. Slavery gave you certain rights. Your master would provide you with food and housing and clothing. And so oftentimes slavery was a better estate than being free. And people would put themselves in slavery voluntarily. Oftentimes it was the academics. Some of the greatest names that we know, writers, philosophers, that sort of thing, uh, they willingly became slaves, and they became the tutors in the households, and their life was actually better as a slave. It was estimated at the time of the writing of our epistle, one out of two people in the Roman world was in fact a slave. And Philemon, whose epistle we have read, his... Home was where the church met, and Philemon was a slave owner. Just consider that. The philosophers of the day were known for writing what was called household codes. The philosophies that bounced around the Greco-Roman world, were sometimes very esoteric and very heady. But one of the things that the, the philosophers wanted you to know was that their philosophies actually impacted the real world, and the way they did that was the writing of these codes. And we still have them. Uh, what the philosopher would do is he would work his way through the household, and he would emphasize in these written codes what each person in the household should do. He would usually begin with the husband, and he would describe the moral virtues the husband ought to have and possess. He would then move to the wife and do the same thing. He would then move to the children and do the same thing. And then he would move to the slaves, which he assumed would be in the household, and he would do the same thing. Here is my philosophy. Here is what husband, wife, children and slaves ought to be doing in response to my philosophy. Does that sound familiar to you, that pattern? Can you think of anywhere in the Bible that pattern stands out? Because it's present. The apostles actually write in household codes, Paul, Peter, will do exactly what the philosophers did. They will give biblical doctrine, and then you'll have fathers, don't disparage your children. You know, wives, honor your husbands. And it works right down through that list the way the philosophers did. It goes down through children, and it goes down through slaves in almost every case. So in the Roman world that Peter is writing to, so far from this being taboo, it's kind of assumed you're going to have slaves in your household, if you're a household owner. Um, and the apostles write to each kind of person in a household, and they say, if you are a follower of the gospel, you should do this. If you're a husband, you're a follower of the gospel, you should do this of a wife, child, slave. Not to digress, but the philosophers did call these household codes. And in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, we see multiple instances where the early Christians baptized whole households. We are assured by our Baptist brethren that households never included children, but the philosophers wrote household codes and they wrote about husbands, wives, children, and slaves. That's how they understood the word household. But the Baptists assure us that households weren't baptized. But I digress. But my point is, when the apostles wrote about how you were to respond to the gospel, uh, slaves were mentioned and included, and uh, they don't seem to have that. Um, they don't seem to have that taboo. Now, slavery is one of those things that would not have existed if the fall had not happened. Uh, Slavery is punitive. It's not pleasant. And if men were not in sin before God, you wouldn't have slavery. It's certainly not a particularly good thing in Scripture, although, again, even in its lack of goodness, the apostles, when they talk about it, focus on what God will do through it. And one of the things he will do is he will work on you, the slave, to build up your patience and cause you to be content. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 7, verse 20 through 24, we read this. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. Okay, let that sink in for a second. Were you called as a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So what is the apostle saying? He is saying that if you possess the Lord Jesus Christ, you should learn to be content in whatever state you are, because having Christ, you have all things. You are the Lord's freedman if you are a slave. Uh, You are learning patience. And patience is literally the opposite of sin. Before worship, I was speaking with one of you, and we were talking about the concept of patience. According to all the greatest theologians, the essence of sin is pride. Pride is self-centered. Pride wants what it wants, right when it wants it. Uh, What is the cure for pride? Pride. Well, it's patience. Patience is self-denying. Patience is learning contentment wherever you happen to be. And Paul here speaks to slaves and he says, Look, if you're slaves, don't don't worry about that. If you can get your freedom, do so. Nobody is pretending that slavery is a pleasant thing, but use it, use it for God, because as a Christian You are a slave of God. Did you catch that? It came through. If slavery is the worst of all sins, and we should never question that, if it is beyond the pale to even consider it, then our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest of sinners, because in Jesus Christ, we all become his slaves. Paul says, if you belong to Christ, you are a slave of Christ. And two chapters later in this same epistle, Paul will say this. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant. Guess what word is underlying it? I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more and to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those under the law, and so on and so on. But Paul has already said, I'm not a slave to men, so he is not a slave to the Jew. He is not a slave to the Gentile. He is a slave to Christ. He is free of men, but he is owned by a master. He is owned by Christ. And in fact, the Apostles always begin their epistles how? Paul, a bondservant, a doulos, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostles identify their slavery to Christ as the greatest good they could possess. I am not a free man. I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are the first words of our confession. What is your only comfort in life and in death? My comfort is I'm a slave. I am owned by Jesus Christ. He is responsible for me. Not a hair will fall from my head unless he allows it because he's my slave owner. I am his property. Absolutely. That is the Christian's comfort. We are in love with our master. Let me return to Moses' law. In the American way of thinking about things, No slave could ever love his master. He is sinning against him. Uh, He is a monster. He is an animal. Uh, A slave would have every moral right to do anything he needed to do to get free. And who could love a master? Exodus chapter 21, verse 1 through 6. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free, go out free, and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. Now, Going out is going out from slavery. It's not saying he loses his wife or his children, but they stay the the masters. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, And his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him forever. I've been part of this household. I love my master. I love what happens here. I don't want to change the relationship. The master says, fine, I will keep you forever. The American recoils in horror and says, this is the most evil thing possible, The Bible says there will be slaves who love their masters, love them to the point they want to stay in the household, and so the master will keep them forever. Do you see any sort of typology happening here? Do you see any shadow of some good thing to come? Moses' law is testifying to what we will feel about our master. Our Lord keeps us forever, and we we love that but lose not sight of the fact that he is talking about slaves and masters who are all human. Last week, I heard a recording of a man who was recorded in the 1930s. Recording just had begun. He was exceedingly old, but he certainly had his mind and he could speak quite well. And he was the slave of Jefferson Davis, and he was being asked, "What is it like to? What was it like to be a slave of Jefferson Davis?" And the man responded, "Well, I received my name from President Davis. He called him. Uh, he was there at my birth, and he named me. And then he went on to talk about Jefferson Davis, and there was no hatred at all." And the interview ended with him describing how his father, who was a slave in Jefferson Davis's household, actually delivered one of the plantations that Jefferson Davis owned out of the hands of the northern invaders and gave it back to Jefferson Davis. He said, my father went to Richmond. And when he got there, Jefferson Davis said, how are you, Thomas? Sit a spell. How are things back home? Well, they're fine. They're mighty fine. But I've I've got something that I need to ask you about, Mr. Davis. Well, what's on your mind? Well, them Yankees are coming down north, and they're looking for your lands. And uh, it'd be really good if your plantation won yours. So how about you deed it to me? And Jefferson Davis thought about that. And he thought, Well, okay. And he deeded it to the slave. The slave now owned the land. When the northern units came and said, Where is Jefferson Davis's plantation? Jefferson Davis's slave said, We don't have one here, but it's mine. He showed him the paperwork, and the enlightened Northern soldiers said, Well, we're not here to take any blank people's land. And so they left it in the slave's hand, and when Jefferson Davis got out of jail, his servant, his slave, gave him back his plantation. Would you do that if you had been sinned against terribly? When the power was in your hand to take the land, nobody would say you couldn't. It completely goes against the narrative but that's what I heard from the man who lived it and was recorded in the 30s. Taboo is irrational. Taboo is something we embrace without being able to defend it, but we embrace it, and it can't be questioned. Yet the Holy Spirit speaks through the Apostle, And he speaks our target verse. He says, slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. That doesn't really need a lot of explication. You understand that. I don't have to preach through every word of that. Slaves, you're a slave, you have a master, serve your master with fear. Now, you don't fear your master, you fear God. But you serve your master because you fear God, and do it with all honor, even if they're not gentle, even if they're harsh. This verse comes in the section that begins, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this is where Peter is moving into, this is how you are to live. Slaves, obey your masters, even if they're jerks. And in fact, between this and that, there is the verse, therefore you are to submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And then it goes on. This is not a guarantee that your slavery will be pleasant. And in fact, notice where this verse lies concerning verse 19 and 20. It's verse 18. Verse 19 and 20 says, For this is commendable, because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it, if you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, we're going to look at that passage, Lord willing, next week. But the point is, it is built right out of this passage, Peter is saying that you will have jerks as slave masters. They will beat you for wrong reasons, Uh, but it is commendable if you suffer because you're doing good. Now, if you suffer because you're doing bad, there's no bragging rights, but you may suffer for doing good. The elephant in the room, which I know you must be thinking is this is all well and good, but consider what happens in slavery. Your master has control over you, can't they make you do evil? After all, uh, since the beginning of time, quite a lot of slavery has been sexual in nature. A lot of it has been marital in nature. The Turkish Empire, for instance, would take the children of Christians and make them slaves, convert them to Islam, and then train them to be warriors for the Islamic Kingdom, uh what do we do with that? That's, that's the big issue, right? Well, Peter has been arguing all through the epistle that authority is hierarchical. Your master, if a slave, is a rightful authority, but he is not the highest authority. Consider how Paul deals with this. In uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through 4-1, he's writing to slaves, and he says this, Slaves, bond but slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, assuming that you have Christian slave owners, masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair knowing that you have a master in heaven. The world says hierarchy is evil, but the Bible says the fact that God is the highest authority, he can be appealed to for good and evil, and it is not actually moral to obey your authority if the authority commands you to do evil. This is actually a comfort. This is actually a blessed part of living in the kingdom of christ in the book the city of god augustine works with an issue that had been taking place just prior to his lifetime there had been christian women who had been placed in slavery and they had been locked in brothels their response since they had no power to get away was that they took their own lives And Augustine actually commends them. He says they feared God above men. They would not do evil because they had a higher master. And this was their way of escaping doing evil. Augustine's admonition is actually fairly biblical. A slave is a slave to a master, but a master is still a slave to God. There is a chain of hierarchy. The slave has rights as Christ's freedman to do what is good. God is not the greatest of sinners, and Jesus Christ is your master. And you have entered his household by saying, I don't want to leave. He has placed upon you a mark that says, I will keep you forever, and that is your only comfort. if you practice taboo taboo comes out of animistic religion so what does that make taboo? It's an act of worship it's irrational but we can't question it because it's holy if you have a taboo you're doing worship to something else. God's word is for all time.